You're listening to an ACA podcast. While this presentation is focused mostly on the migrant experience, I think it's important to recognise that the migrant dream is itself predicated on Indigenous dispossession. In the words of artists and writers Kim Lam and Emma Doe, so-called Australia imagines itself as a nation of opportunity while violently denying First Nations peoples of their lands and rights. And this is an important reminder for all of us, but especially within the context of this talk, that migrant struggles for belonging and recognition are also explicitly tied to struggles for Indigenous rights, sovereignty and justice. So let's begin. It starts with an invitation. In their introduction to unnatural language processing, an event exploring the history, politics, and artistic potential of automatic speech recognition, our hosts invite us to join them in an experiment in learning to listen like a machine. To do this, they introduce us to a new instrument. It works by using elements of speech-to-text and automatic speech recognition to transcribe video and audio files. Once transcribed, these files can then be uploaded to an interface that allows an operator to search, play, analyze, deconstruct, and recombine fragments of voice data extracted from human speech. What could such an instrument be used for, they asked. Could it be used like a synthesizer, something to play with and to create new compositions out of elements of speech and voice? Could it be used like a stethoscope, a device to listen to the internal functions of and diagnose the problems of speech recognition. In this way, is it a tool not just for composition, but for critique? A technique to interrogate the apparatus and functions of a technology that increasingly surrounds us. In one provocation, they ask, can the word processor be used forensically to listen back or to appropriate or subvert the surveillance methods to which speech recognition has often been put? perhaps instead to investigate and problematize its own shortcomings, its own failures to listen well. In my own work, I've been thinking about how systems and technologies like AI and machine learning are transforming how we study and understand concepts like gender and race. With my colleague Scott Walk, we've been thinking specifically about how algorithmic techniques for sorting, classifying, and producing knowledge about the world have opened up new regimes of perception. We describe these as post-visual regimes, arguing that much of our social and cultural processes now operate in ways that cannot be seen, either because they operate on scales that are beyond human scrutiny or because they are deliberately obscured and opaque. We look at the challenges for studying race within this context, analysing modes of classification that operate through proxies and abstractions, that figure racialized bodies not as single coherent subjects, but as shifting clusters of data. To use an example, we've analysed how Facebook racially classifies its users for the purposes of advertising. So between 2016 and 2020, Facebook allowed its users allowed its advertisers to target American users based on three broad categories, African-American, US Hispanic, and Asian-American. Labeled as ethnic affinities, these categories were controversial. Firstly, because they let advertisers exclude audiences as well as target. So one could purchase an ad and ask for it to be explicitly targeted at African-American, US Hispanic, and Asian-American people. But one could also purchase an ad, say, for housing, and ask for it not to be seen 
by audiences who are African-American, US, Hispanic, or Asian-American? What is a direct violation of US federal anti-discrimination laws? But this was also controversial because Facebook does not explicitly ask users to identify themselves according to race. Instead, these categorizations are algorithmically determined using behavioral data and indirect proxy indicators, like language use, interests, and IP address. And this is a very unique way of doing racialization. It completely divorces race from the body. Race is no longer associated or explicitly tied to somatic elements like phenotype or genotype. It's also divorced from self-identification, the way people self-categorize themselves for the purposes of belonging and solidarity. Significantly, it also allows race to be constantly assessed and reassessed based on a continuous flow of behavioral data. So one can shift in and out of racial categories based on new information. Information that you are often unaware is being collected, acted on by processes you're unable to see, and with consequences that are incredibly difficult to document or evidence. For us, grappling with this new mode of racialization is significant for scholars and activists and others invested in racial justice because it confronts us with some really new and important questions. How can we advocate against a process that operates beyond our perception? How can we keep up with the pace of dynamic classification? Classifications that are being assessed and reassessed with every new piece of behavioral data. And how do these issues make redundant traditional tools of resistance? So advocating for inclusion or representation makes no sense in a post-visual regime. How do we resist a category we don't even know we've been placed within? And how do we form communities of solidarity under those conditions? Now these questions are as much methodological as they are theoretical or conceptual. So we ended our paper with a call to find new tools to help us think, identify, and confront the invisual aspects of racialization we see proliferating today. So, so then when I received this invitation, you know, to play and experiment with a new instrument, my first thought was, might this be it? Is this the instrument, the kind of tool that we've been looking for? a method for cracking open the black box of racialization in the algorithmic age. What follows in this presentation is really a documentation of my process of stepping into this invitation, of working not just with the tool, but with the machine listening team as they helped me to attune to the rhythms and possibilities of unnatural language processing. So this talk is divided into roughly four parts, each representing a different experiment with the machine listening word processor. Experiment one, an error in transcription, looks at a small controlled experiment where I use the tool to listen and analyze my own voice saying my own name. Material, experiment two, material witness, expands this experiment to a, to a different though still personal corpus of data listening to interviews of my family as they code switch between Vietnamese and English. Experiment three, sameness and replication, focuses on the problem of race, prediction, paranoia, and algorithms. And experiment four, misrecognizing misrecognition, is a final theoretical reflection on those combined experiments.
So let's begin. An error in transcription. Length, duration, time, sentence, syllables, phonemes, parts of speech, letters. These are the elements of metadata extracted from every word transcribed and uploaded to the machine listening word processor. It is on these bits of information that a system designed to automatically recognize, transcribe, and act on speech operates. The word processor displays this data for its users so that they can listen and see how language is passed by a machine. If we take as an example the word listening, the word processor interface shows us that the word listening is nine letters long, takes 0.530 seconds to be enunciated, occurs 42.7 seconds into the recording, is the seventh word in the sentence and takes place 1.73 seconds into this sentence, contains two syllables, has a word speed of 3.774 syllables per second with stressed syllables occurring 0.25 and 0.28 seconds in, contains six phonemes, l, i, s, n, n, a, is classified as a gerund, a non-finite verb that functions as a noun, present tense and verb, and has one E, one G, two I's, one L, two N, one S, and one T. It also shows us more abstract audio features like word energy, pitchiness, spectral scope, and male frequency sexual coefficients, measurements derived from complex analysis of audio spectrum data. This data is sometimes used to make claims on sentiment and emotional expression, whether a, voice contains, um, whether a voice contains sounds that express happiness, fear, or rage. It's also how a system like a smart speaker identifies different user voices, or how users are classified according to age or gender based on voice data alone. It's no surprise that these dubious claims are often prone to error. So anyone with a smart speaker will know the daily frustration of a speaker that either fails to recognize things like wake words or requests or over-recognizes unrelated speech, announcing their presence at unexpected moments, eerily reminding us that they really are always on and always listening. But it's, it's precisely this error, this failure in listening, that I'm interested in interrogating. In this first experiment, the aim was to listen to error, to understand the elements of speech recognition, or in this case, misrecognition. The first task was putting together this talk, the first path for putting together this talk was, was to generate a series of images or short compositions that could be used to promote this event. So I recorded myself reading the event description aloud with the intention of feeding it back into the tool. Our fan listening to misrecognition. What is the sound of racialization? How might we listen to misrecognition? What does machine error tell us about the precision of racism? And how can the tools of a racist system be used to transcribe new forms of resistance? This experimental presentation by feminist techno-science researcher Tao Fan. So it worked perfectly, but for one key detail. My name, as read by myself, was consistently unable to be transcribed. So in place of the words Taofan were, were mistranslations, misapproximations. Taofan, 
Taz, Charles. <laughs> so on the one hand, I was absolutely thrilled to see this live demonstration of error expressed through the very specific and familiarized racialized misrecognition to so quickly produce an artifact that in one minute and 24 seconds captured a lifetime of schoolyard frustration of teachers and colleagues and employers and students and call center operators and baristas consistently mispronouncing my name. It reminded me of all the mouths I've seen desperately sounding out letters, making broad proxy noises in the hope that one might approach the right phonetic combination. <laughs> Charles? Taz? Or in this case, when no attempt is made at all, when there are simply two blank spaces, two moments of silence that I recognize as the sound of a person who stands paralyzed and slightly aghast that such a puzzling combination of letters could possibly exist. The kind of frustrations that when I was still in school, I would close my eyes and ask, why can't I have one of those easy names like Tina? While this moment of error and transcription was, per was perfect for the purposes of understanding misrecognition, it was, however, useless for the purposes of promotion because my name is supposed to be in the title. So the final image that you see here, you know, this transcript has been manually adjusted. So while the title, Tao Fan, listening to misrecognition, is now technically closer to correct, it is ironically conceptually further from the point. I made additional recordings of myself reading my name aloud and uploaded them into the tool, selecting them so that we could compile and run further tests. And each instance delivered more and more bizarre deviations. Tell fan, tack, tax file number, tell his, a Taliban. Yet, in a sea of error, there was at least one correct transcription, which tells me that this is a part of the vocabulary of training data, but for some reason rarely had the opportunity to surface. So why is that? What's happening here? As I mentioned earlier, the word processor can give you information on the metadata about your words. Earlier you may have wondered, why is it that we need things like what number word this is in a sentence? In natural language processing, words are transcribed not just by what it sounds like, but what it is statistically likely to be. So, for example, Charles. Because of the way the sentence is structured with a preposition to, and then the word presentation five words in, and then this missing unknown word ends with an S, grammatically it should be a possessive pronoun, a person's name, and one that sounds like it has one syllable. And then so the machine goes out and puzzles on, you know, what is the statistically likely possessive pronoun that sounds like it has one syllable? And I can only guess that statistically, based on whatever corpus data this has been trained on, that that, that answer is Charles. 
Charles is the one who is the most likely to give a presentation. Which is why I think, uh, which is why I think at the very beginning in the first instance, there are blank spaces. Because the automatic speech recognition tool has no context to draw on yet. Whereas everywhere else, it does have some information to pull on. Enough to at least say, oh, this should be a proper noun, or a singular noun, or a person, or a first name, or whatever. Experiment two, material witness. For the media scholar Wendy Chun, such errors, such instances of misrecognition, are not just aberrations that should be ignored or corrected out of existence, but instead they can function to expose the sexism and the racism that we know are already coded into these systems. She uses examples like Amazon's AI hiring program, a program that was trained on the company's past hiring practices and so learnt to discriminate against female applicants. It systematically downgraded applicants who graduated from historical women's colleges or, or who even had the word women in their CV, such as women's chess champion or captain of the women's soccer team. She also uses the example of Amazon's facial recognition program that was being used by Chicago police to identify suspects and that, when tested by the American Civil Liberties Union, misidentified 28 members of US Congress as criminals disproportionately giving false positives results for members who are visible minorities, i.e. not white. For Chun, these kinds of normative AI and machine learning outputs should not just be dismissed or overlooked as the biased results of flawed systems. On the contrary, the problem with these outputs is that they are too accurate, too faithful, too willing to show us the prejudices that we are so reticent to face directly. In this way, she argues, these systems can still be useful to diagnose current inequalities and to treat discriminatory predictions as evidence of past discrimination. In short, they can provide the empirical means to document the racism that for many of us have only been expressed or noted anecdotally. They can be used to borrow a phrase from artist and researcher Susan Shupley as a material witness to injustice to a history of political violence. Shupley defines material witnesses as non-human entities and machinic ecologies that archive their complex interactions with the world, producing ontological transformation and informatic dispositions that can be forensically decoded and reassembled back into history. A material witness is, in effect, a Mobius-like concept that continually twists between divulging evidence of the event and exposing the event of evidence. So can the word processor instrument operate as a material witness to forensically analyze the event of misrecognition? For this experiment, I dove into my family's personal archive of recordings. These are recordings that I had made several years earlier for a linguist friend who was interested in understanding code switching, that is, alternating between languages in Vietnamese-Australian families. And I found two examples that represent two kinds of events. The first is a very typical, everyday domestic exchange between my older sister and my mum. My mum is explaining how my then two-year-old nephew has gone at childcare that day. Rồi, bữa nay nó đi nhà trẻ sao? 
Bữa nay nó đi nhà trẻ đó, khi mà đem nó tới đó, nó khóc quá chừng là nó khóc luôn. Talks about nó khóc nó không có chịu luôn. Sau đó rồi thì mẹ về rồi khi mẹ mẹ tới mẹ đón thì thấy nó vui vẻ nó chơi thì vui. When she came vui, to pick him up day, he was very happy. Nó khóc có 10 phút thôi. Playing well, the staff told her he only cried for 10 minutes. Nó chơi nó rất là chơi rất là giỏi. Trưa nó ngủ là từ 12 giờ 50 cho tới 2 giờ 30. Wow, good sleeping, Sebi. Yeah. Vậy bữa nay nó không muốn ngủ, ngủ trễ. Wow, Sebi đâu? And here he is oh, climbing on my sister. Rồi mẹ làm um, pancake mà đem cho nó ăn pancakes. thì nó ăn hết cái hộp pancake. And he ate the whole box. And there are only two bites left. Nó ăn trái cây với đồ. Rồi đem theo trái cây cho nó ăn. Yeah. She tried to make him eat some fruit, but he's a bit funny with fruit. Good boy, Sebi. And my sister wants to know about how well he socializes with other kids. Does he play with them? Is he hitting anyone? Being selfish and not sharing? Does he sit alone? Or does he like to participate? The second is an interview between myself and my uncle, where he's telling me about his migration story from Vietnam to Australia. Welcome to A. <laughs> Hello, <laughs> to how interview. are you? Good. Good, Good. I welcome, like it. Welcome to your interview. Yeah, sure. Um, let's start with talking about your migration story. Migration, ah, that's how I came to Australia. Uh -huh. I like that one. Yeah, now, now. I came to Australia in 1981. Mm -hmm. um, I tell you a story how I come. I, I did not come here like other people. They come with passport and sit on the plane, got flight attendants, serving food and sleeping like that. <laughs> I escaped from Vietnam. Mm -hmm. I was in, in a wooden boat. They call boat people. You heard about? Boat people. I've heard about boat people. Yeah, that con là dược biên, người dược biên. Người dược biên. bằng thuyền. Boat, yeah, dược biên bằng thuyền. There is a number of people, they cross the road from Vietnam to Cambodia, mm -hmm. Cambodia to Thailand. That one escaped by land, mm -hmm. on land. Mm -hmm. They walk. They left their own food, actually. But I was on the boat. Mm -hmm. So what we do is we come together. This way, we I. Uh, that all the people on the, the boat, we don't know. We don't know. Yes, I come with your brother and uh, my your. Brother, my yeah. dad. Oh, your dad. Sorry. <laughs> your brother. Ah, my brother and your dad. Sorry about that. My me mix up and uh, go berserk here. Um, yeah. So in his very charming way, my uncle goes on to describe the political context in post-war Vietnam, of the communist restrictions on movement, his multiple attempts at escape, the amount he paid to board a fishing ship with my dad and my aunt, and how when they arrived at the boat, there were not the 60 passengers they expected, but closer to 120 other escapees. He talks about being seasick, being squashed in like tuna, though I think he means sardines, below deck near the engine and taking turns and going up for air. How they were finally picked up by an American supply ship and transported to a refugee camp in Thailand before finally receiving refugee status and arriving in Melbourne. So these are two very different kinds of events. 
The first is incredibly mundane, almost so banal, you would hardly consider it to be an event. And the second is more recognisable as an event, the grand spectacle of a life-altering escape, a radical break in one's life trajectory, something that signals the commencement of something new, something different. By feeding both of these very different moments into the instrument, I was hoping to create a third kind of event, the event of misrecognition. So what experiment one had taught me is that if something as simple as my name was misrecognized, then these incredibly significant and intimate parts of my life would likely be completely unintelligible to the system. And I was right. So uh, looking at both transcripts, there are so many gaps, so many blank squares, moments of untranscribability, moments of complete misrecognition and error. The transcript for my sister and mom in particular was, I would say, quite mad, reading like the ramblings of a complete maniac. Okay, all right, but no, flocked in London, a couple of, a couple of them, they may have, well, good sleeping, Derby. Yeah, wow, Sebby. Now I'll stop it. Mummy, um, pancake, madam? Good boy, huh? And Joey, y'all? No, more, no more. Yeah. Is this how we're heard, I thought? No wonder so many innocent people end up on terrorist watch lists. One minute you're talking about collaborating with Tao Fan, the next you're booked for conspiring with the Taliban. <laughs> like Chun, political geographer Louisa Moore has written on such moments of aberration and algorithmic madness. She argues that when algorithms appear to cross a threshold into madness, they in fact exhibit significant qualities of their form of rationality. Understood in this way, the appearance of a moment of madness is a valuable instant for ethico-politics because this is a moment when algorithms give account of themselves. So what kind of account was it giving to me? It told me that my family's language was completely unintelligible, inaudible, not fit for processing within this kind of system. It's an experience of machine misrecognition Yet strangely, it didn't tell me anything more about the logic behind the system that I didn't feel like I already knew. I already knew that proper English is proper English is treated as a precondition for institutional and state recognition. I already knew that for people like me and my family, you know, people who code switch, people who speak with an accent, people who deviate in any possible way from a standardized norm are never counted as fully human, even if the arbiter of that decision is a machine. So did I really need this tool to tell me all that? Did I really have to manufacture this event in order to understand the syncopation and cadences of racism? I had to ask myself, was I evidencing misrecognition or was I merely replicating it? Experiment three, sameness and replication. In critical algorithm studies, the problem of racism and racist systems is often understood as a problem of history repeating itself, of garbage in, garbage out. 
of the mistakes of a discriminatory past becoming embedded into contemporary infrastructures that amplify and automate these injuries and injustices. This is most palpable in the mass operationalization of predictive analytics today. Predictive analytics and risk models are used in a wide range of contexts. They're used to make determinations on credit and loan eligibility, hireability and job fitness, exposure to education and housing opportunities, likelihood of crime recidivism and whether one is flagged for child safety or welfare monitoring. The platformization of media, news, music, games, film, television and social networks, enfolds micro aspects of daily life into regimes of commercial manipulation, driven by the promise of predicted analytics. On a macro scale, complex simulation models designed to predict, prevent and suppress large-scale risks have birthed new regimes of anticipatory governance. In Australia, amidst unprecedented national bushfires and the spread of a deadly pandemic, the language of prediction, future-oriented statistics and images of flattened or rising curves, are the primary means by which a government communicates with a nation, caught in cascading and seemingly endless waves of crisis. While ostensibly oriented towards the future, in practice, predictive models operationalize the past. At their worst, these systems not only perpetuate inequality, but foreclose alternate possibilities for futures that do not conform to previous patterns or expectations. In this way, predictive systems serve as formalized instruments of racialization fundamental to forms of racism, sexism, and ableism encoded into the default settings of technology and society. As many scholars have argued, what makes these systems uniquely dangerous is that they travel under the sign of empirically justified, objective calculations, make it difficult to enforce accountability or political responsibility. Prediction here proceeds on the regressive logic of sameness and replication. Futures that are intelligible so long as they resemble the past. Indeed, these are not futures at all, but self-fulfilling prophecies that in Wendy Chun's words, closes the world it pretends to open. In this way, racialization and algorithm prediction have a lot in common. The process of being racialized feels like living inside of a predetermined vocabulary of being, of futures and worlds that close rather than open. So reflecting on my experiment, I realized that I was no longer using the tool to critique misrecognition, I was using it to manufacture misrecognition. That in essence, I was committing the same error as the machine, of sameness and replication of a regressive form of prediction, of failing to imagine a world for myself and my family outside of racism. In his writing on Fanon and the functions of the colonial state, First Nations scholar Glenn Coulthard writes that for the philosopher Franz Fanon, the long-term stability of a colonial system of governance relies as much on the internalization of forms of racist recognition imposed or bestowed on the indigenous population by the colonial state and society as it does on brute force. In this way, he argues, the politics of recognition has come to serve the interests of colonial power. 
by enticing Indigenous people to identify, either explicitly or, or either implicitly or explicitly, with the profoundly asymmetrical and non-reciprocal forms of recognition either imposed on or granted to them by the settler state. While I'm writing from a slightly different context uh, of the migrant in Australia, I nevertheless saw in myself the paranoia of the colonised subject, the individual who embodies self-doubt, who anticipates and thus reifies their own misrecognition. Experiment four, misrecognizing misrecognition. So I turned again to the instrument, this time with a different question in hand. I revisited the concept of the material witness. Susan Shipley, like myself, is influenced by the legacy of feminist materialism. She looks at the work of feminist philosophers like Isabel Stengers, and in particular Stengers' insistence to let matter speak for itself. Shipley writes, Stengers admonished scientists who came to their subjects with the hypothesis well in hand and sought merely to test its validity and thus confirm or deny their initial premise. I'm beginning to suspect that a large part of the research has been done with the ulterior motive of imposing an answer on it. If only we were content to let the material speak. Researchers, she argues, must accept the possibility that it is not man, but the material that asks the questions and that has the story to tell, which one has to learn to unravel. So rather than submit myself or my loved ones to another contrived experiment in misrecognition, I tried something else. I let the machine listen to itself. So in 2021, I collaborated with the UQ Art Museum for the online exhibition, Conflict in My Outlook. I wrote an essay on digital assistance and accent regionalization, looking at an ad launching the new Google Assistant in Australia that featured a very charming Australian accented voice. I looked at how accent regionalization is one of the techniques by which companies create what is often called a natural sounding voice. For human computer interaction researchers, human nature is commonly understood through the lens of evolutionary psychology. The result being that conservative design decisions like default female voices or white voices are justified using the excuse that it's just human nature to make these choices. And I wondered if the word processor tool might agree. With a perfectly optimized voice, could this speech recognition system pass another speech recognition system? So I fed the ad into the instrument with the following result. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. Across the deserts, bare man. I breathe the mountain air, man. Of travel, I've had my share, man. I've been everywhere. I've been to Wollongong, Geelong, Currajong, Malibimbi, Mittagong, Molong, Grong, Grong, Gudawindi, Yarra Yarra, Buindara, Wollongara, Taramara, Bogabai, Gundagai, Narabrai, Tabubara, Gulgong, Adalong, Billabong, Cabramatta, Paramatta, Mangaratta, Kulangatta, What It Matter. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere. Been to Adalong, Dandenong, Woodenbong, Ballarat, Canberra, Mulhera, Unandera, Captain's Flat, Long Curry, River Murray, Curry Curry, Yirraween, 
Terrigal, Stock and Bing, Collaroy, and Narrabeen, Bendigo, Naribo, Bangalore, Indirabili, Kirabili, Irangili, Wellandili. Don't be silly. Okay, mate. Been to Tullamore, Seymour, Lismore, Malulaba, Nambour, Maruchador. Okay, Google. How far to Maruchador? The drive from your location to Maruchador is 1,026.6 kilometres. Kilmore, Willembar, Birdsville, Emmerville, Wellaville, Kunnamulla, Condonese, Strathmore. So this is the kind of system that allows you to say to your phone, where's the closest servo to, big, to the big banana? Take me to the nearest Maccas in Gundagai. So what's very interesting here is that despite being read aloud by another machine, the system still misrecognizes this speech. But not always, right? So if you look closely, we can see that it misrecognizes things like place names, you know, what I suspect are the equivalent of the Tao fans, you know, words that are too foreign for the system to recognize. But what's also interesting is that it can't recognize parts of speech that elsewhere it has been able to perfectly transcribe. So over at... Over around here. It can't transcribe, I've been everywhere, man. But it knows this phrase, and we know it knows this phrase, because it's done it twice before over there. So what this experiment is telling me is that the machine is a stranger, even unto itself. And this was an amazing revelation. It allowed me to revisit those other experiments with a different sense of misrecognition. So I looked again, in particular at the transcript between myself and my uncle, where I thought what would be super interesting here, um, which, which I thought would be super interesting because it did, it did transcribe a lot. But this time I, I concentrated on these ellipses. What the machine reads as a, a sound, something untranscribable. So what you're seeing here is a, a video of the process of collecting all these untranscribable moments from the transcript. 81. Con là dược biên, người dược biên. Người dược biên. Người dược biên. Con là đặt cái sách về đấy. Mà chú đi đi với cô My dad. Your brother. Em đi đến UAE tôi xây ấy cho phép. Ấy cho phép. Dạ. Giấy phép rời cái chỗ quê quán địa phương. Tạch. Phải trách. Dạ. Phải 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 trách. Ở Tây Trách. Tạch đi. The city. Ở mình phải mua cái những cái giấy đó tại vì những cái giấy đó họ cấp. Họ cấp tức là công an phường xã nó cấp á. Mình không mua thì mình không có giấy đó Mà không có cái giấy đó Thì người ta không bán vé Phải có cái giấy đó Tại vì Chú đi mua Mua Rạch giá Trước khi chú đi Mua Mua hết Những cái đó là cái người tổ chức Cái người tổ chức vượt biên á Họ mua sẵn những cái giấy đó Thành là từ Sài Gòn đi xuống Cần Thơ Là họ đưa cho cái giấy đó thôi Là mình chỉ việc Giấy đó là giấy ma, giấy quỷ, nhưng mà giấy thiệt là tại vì cái công an đó, nó ký đó. Rồi. So, do you pay money? Dạ. Mm -hmm. LXC. 
trừ rạch giá là mỗi cái tỉnh là có mỗi cái tờ giấy khác nhau của 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 cái widget follow lại là shape bè widget cơm tấm sườn bì chả trứng y So that's all the all the compiled moments of untranscribability. And what did we hear? We heard a lot of mouth sounds, a lot of eating sounds, a lot of chopsticks hitting bowls, some laughter, some Vietnamese yes, but just like the Google video, a lot of English as well. So why is this? One reason is noise. So noise is random, unwanted fluctuations in sound, as opposed to signal, which is desired communication. So with the Google Assistant, we could say that the errors in transcription might be because of the background music causing too much noise, interfering with the signal. But in this case, it's something different. It's because the speakers are code switching. It's not just that they're speaking Vietnamese or because they're speaking English with an accented voice. It's because they're switching between languages so that Vietglish itself is a language that is unable to be transcribed. It's not as easy as trying to combine an English language processor with a Vietnamese language processor. The, the model can't deal with two different languages be talking at the same time. In this case, a third language emerges that it's unfamiliar with. So it can transcribe, you can recognize and transcribe a phrase like, I've been everywhere, but it's all the other unfamiliar words before and after it corrupting the statistical model, creating aberrations. So now I look at it and I no longer see the shame and paranoia of racialized misrecognition. Rather, I see these aberrations as gifts, as a reminder that the fullness of racialized life can never be captured never be frozen and transcribed inside of racist domains of recognition. It's a reminder that we don't need to look to a failing system and ask to be granted legitimacy. On the contrary, our legitimacy is in our excess, our failure to align with a homogenous technical standard. It allows us to look at that system and say, a machine is not the arbiter of my humanity. It ends with an invitation. In May 2021, the US Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, put out a call inviting submissions for a funding opportunity working on a project they called Computational Cultural Understanding. They state, the Department of Defense is one of many government agencies that operates globally and is in constant contact with diverse cultures. Communicative understanding, not simply of local languages, but also of social customs and cultural backgrounds, lies at the heart of civil affairs and military information support operations activities. The aim of the project are to create a cross-cultural language understanding serving to improve the DOD's operators' situational awareness and ability to effectively interact with diverse international audiences. Additionally, it aims to create a capability that can recognize speaker emotions across different languages and culture. Human interpreters continuously monitor emotional feedback from conversational participants 
things like facial expressions, tone of voice, diction, using this information to gauge how the interaction is progressing and alter the exchange as needed. In order to interpret speaking emotions as influenced by sociocultural context, CCU will focus on developing multimodal human language technologies capable of generalizing their recognition of emotion across different languages and cultures. Furthermore, CCU seeks to create capabilities to detect significant changes in communication that could indicate impending conflict or dispute. While promising change detection methods exist, current frameworks lack an understanding of which features are most crucial to detecting imminent communicative failure. In short, they want to create an AI-enabled translation tool that translates not only language, but culture and that can flag any potentially threatening tones in the voice of their interlocutors. So it's my great fear that my experiments today, or any of my work, would be used to support a project like this. That an organization like DARPA would look to my forensic analysis for inspiration on how to solve the problem of transcribing race and bilingualism. As someone who researches new technology, I always feel like I'm running from co-option, that my critiques might actually be used to sustain the oppressive technocracy I'm trying to tear down. I don't think there's an easy way to avoid this aside from reiterating again and again that optimization isn't the answer, and to hope that someone aside from a machine is listening. The misalignments between the world and computational processes are not errors to be fixed, but are spaces of resistance and possibility that we would be foolish to submit to technological capture. In the words of cultural theorist Ramon Amaro, if we, accept, if we accept the present matrix of computational systems as a normalizing logics, then perhaps we should turn away from our dependencies on the artificial to activate the internal halls of possibilities that pre-exist in human potentiality. Thank you very much.